everybody, it's me, Katieosaurus, also known as Katie Osborne. Hey everybody, it's me, Hey Good, also known as Erica Good. Before we begin, we have a couple of housekeeping notes. First, we just want to remind you that one of the best ways that you can support Infinite Quest is by going to your podcast menu of choice and just leaving us a review. And also telling your friends about us. Because we exist, and we like people to know. If you want to support us in a more financial way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash infinitequest. You can become a patron and give us like five bucks, like a month or something like that. Also, I started an OnlyFans. It's, it's called Schmadiosaurus. That way no one will know it's me. <laughs> Without further ado, here is Season 1, Episode 15 of Infinite Quest. Hyperfocus. Oh, hello! Welcome to Season 1, Episode 15 of Katie and Eric's Infinite Quest, an ADHD adventure. This episode, we're going to talk about hyperfocus slash hyperfixation. I'm so excited. Also, 15? We're yeah. on Episode 15? We're on Episode 15, Katie. That's bananas. That is That's bananas. nearly 100. That's nearly 100, yeah. <laughs> 15 is practically 100, and 100 is, that's like practically, practically, practically a, thousand, a thousand, right? <laughs> My gosh. That's so good. A thousand episodes. Good for us. When, good for <laughs> yeah, us. Yeah, honestly, good job, buddy. I'm really proud of us. Well, Katie, I believe you had some super cool thing that you had been telling so, me. I did. So, okay. So, we had talked about uh, talking about hyperfixation and hyperfocus. And I started doing research on hyperfixation and hyperfocus. And then this happened. I got tagged in a video on TikTok. Send Ludes tagged me in this video, but the original poster was actually ra.ainbow. It's rainbow. A beautiful rainbow. That's a really nice name. Yeah, we love that. I like that. I just realized that I've been saying it as Sendaludes, but then I realized that the actual screen name is Sendaludes. That's what it's actually called. Oh, Sendaludes. That's what their actual screen name is. Okay, so here is her question. If you have ADHD, you can know the, like, horrible experience of your hyperfixation and something that like genuinely gives you joy turn into an assignment in your head which you then procrastinate i have experienced this a lot all of my art projects have become that but i've never had someone influence that process for me i've been hyper fixating on redoing my room taking down my wardrobe repainting everything and just redesigning and i could tell my dad was going to steamroll it and make it also his project because he also has perfections so I decided to do it by myself. The second day he came in and just yelled at me about how I was doing it wrong, how this is dirty, and then started giving me tasks to do. As soon as he did that, I went downstairs and then watched a YouTube video for an hour. I was focused, and then suddenly I'm procrastinating the assignment I've been given when it was my idea. That's a great question. It was kind of like a two-parter, right? Because when I first watched the video, I thought the question was going in a different direction. I thought the question was going to be, what do you do when the novelty of your hyperfocus starts to to fade yeah, and go that's away? Yeah, kind of where I thought it was going. Um, but then there's like that really interesting component about what happens when external factors start impacting your hyperfixation or your hyperfocus. And I think that's really interesting because I think that both of us can apply the same external factor to our individual hyperfixations. And I would like to offer you, I would like to offer you a hypothesis. What's that, Katie? You were a, a music. I mean, you are, you still are a musician. Sure. Right? Yes. You loose, are a fancy boy. Loose definition of the fancy term musician, boy. but sure. And and I have been a performer and an actor and, and all of that thing for years and years. Looser definition of performer, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Katie. Fuck you very much. Um, <laughs> rehearsal. 
practice. Yes. The external uh, assignment creator of the thing that brings us joy. And I think that's really interesting. And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about hyperfixation. What happens when the joy of your hyperfixation goes away, which is like such a real thing. Like that's happened to me so many times oh, in my it's life. brutal. I dread it. But then also like, let's talk about those external factors. So, okay. So first though, before like we really get into this, I think one of the things that we need to make very clear is how we use the terms hyperfocus and hyperfixation yeah. because they are kind of two different things, but ultimately like... I tend to sort of like wrap them into the same umbrella because to me, hyperfocus is what happens when you are drawn into like a specific task. So we'll say like doing the dishes or cleaning or sewing or like, you know, for you, you know, um, uh, like coffee store models. You are hyperfocused in that moment on the thing. Hyperfixation is more a topic. Like people use television shows or like book series a lot as an example, like Harry Potter or Game of Thrones or whatever. Like I'm hyper fixated on this. And so I am consuming everything about it. And I am I am learning everything there is to know about it, like whatever. But it can be anything. It can be any topic, any subject, any whatever. But the way that I tend to think about it and talk about it is that hyper fixation is always hyper focus. It is just a hyper-focus on a topic. So it's like not all hyper-fixations are hyper-focuses, but all mm. hyper-focuses are hyper-fixations. Yeah, I think of it as Does sort that make of, sense? Yeah, like a, a hyper-focus is an, is an instance of hyper-fixation. Like I am hyper-fixated on bookbinding at all times. Like during, which is true by the way, <laughs> um, there was a two-month period where I was just doing it all day, every day. It was amazing. Um, so that whole period, I was hyper-fixated on it. But I wasn't always hyper-focused on it because I was at work and stuff. So the hyper-focus was me sitting at the desk doing it. I was hyper-focused, which was because I was hyper-fixated. I was in a, a, fra- a phase of hyper-fixation. So hyper-fixation is sort of like you hyper-fixate on the hobby. And when you're doing the hobby at your desk, that's when you're hyper-focusing. I also want to point out that these are not the literal definitions of these words. This is just how Katie and I tend to tend to use them. We also tend to use them indiscriminately. So I guess yeah. we'll try to be clear about if we mean the, the, the larger concept of hyperfixation or a specific instance of hyperfocus. Yeah, but so going into the episode, we just wanted to make that clear that we both kind of independently of each other tend to use that those terms interchangeably. So just wanted to let you know. Yeah, so I, from what I gather, those external factors, in Rainbow's case, it was, I believe, their father yeah. um, who came and told them that they were doing it wrong and all that yeah. stuff. So it seems like the external factor can be a person, but I also feel like the external factor can be something that we create for ourselves. For example, I, like say, let's say as a musician, and I think I should really practice more, and so I think I'm going to practice from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. every day. Now I've created this schedule, this outside thing. This this is the schedule. Mm-hmm. And now I'm beholden to that. So that is now, even though I created it, it is now the external thing mm-hmm. that can kind of throw a big old wet towel. Is that what it is? Throw a damp rag on? Sure. Is that the expression? Sure. Your hyperfixation. Like something that always happened to me when I was a kid is occasionally I would hyperfixate on cleaning and rearranging my room. Because yeah, me I would, too. it's a, it's a, it was a wonderful feeling. I would look in my room, look at my room as like a thirteen year old or something, and thinking like, this is my room. I live here. This is a representation of me. This is my space, and I want to make it nice. Just purely internal motive, internally motivated. Yeah. 
And so I would start cleaning and rearranging things and being like, hmm, that, that'd be nice. I can sit there and read or whatever. And I would start doing that and I would get really into it, really like, you know, nesting. And then my mom would yell up the stairs like, hey, Eric, could you clean your room? And I would just immediately be like, not fuck low 100% of this. We are done with the room cleaning that's thing. That's literally exactly what Rainbow was talking about. I, it's, well, that was going to, that's such a, like, that happens to me. So it was, it was almost creepy how precisely my mom, I feel like she heard me cleaning and then thought, oh, that's, he's going to, oh, that's right. He needs to clean. And then would tell me. Yeah. But it's so strange how it's, it's so different when it comes from inside, when you feel motivated. And then all of a sudden an external factor can cause you to almost sort of resent the task. Yeah, um, it, I, I don't really. It, it's it's. I don't want to oversimplify it, but to me, it kind of it it kind of feels like, you know, at a certain stage when you're a teenager, you become rebellious, and you're just you're just questioning whatever the reality around you is. Yeah, and so and which is necessary. It's totally good to do that. And so if somebody tells you, "Hey, I need you to do this," it's totally normal and healthy to just go, "Well, why? Like, yeah. who are you to tell me what to do?" And it's really unfortunate when you want the thing. And then because an external factor pops up and then in, in dictates that you should do that and instructs you to do that, it now it makes me forget that I was initially initially internally motivated at, like at first. Yeah. And I get really that's another thing that I get really mad at me for is, is I, 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 oh my God, I actively fear somebody praising me for doing something that I'm hyper focused on mm-hmm. because then I don't feel like I'm doing it for me anymore. See, that's my thing. Like, my thing is purely about expectation. Mm-hmm. Because, like, and, and I see, like, and I see that pattern of behavior in my life, right? Because for me, like, you know me. I will, like, I'm a stage manager. I'm a professional stage manager. I've been an event planner. I've been an event coordinator. And so, like, there is, there have been, I should say, points in my life where, like, I will be helping someone I will be assisting someone and but my way of assisting someone is like stage management so it's like I will pepper pots for them right (laughs) Right. but it's like the minute that that becomes the expectation is the minute where I don't want to do it anymore right but what gets hard is when that is applied to like hyper my hyper fixations and like the really good example is Shakespeare because, like, I know I always find a way to shoehorn this into the conversation, but, like, I have two master's degrees in Shakespeare. And for a very long time, I was the Shakespeare girl. Like, that was my identity. That was who I was. Like, everybody knew that I was the Shakespeare girl. But more specifically, I was the Titus Andronicus girl. Because, like, my hyperfixation within my love of Shakespeare is Titus Andronicus. And then it started to feel like an obligation. And then it started to feel like there was this, and there was, there was this like external thing of my friends and my community and this sort of like world where I was living, where like I was one of the world's foremost experts on Titus Andronicus. So of course my next academic paper was going to be on Titus Andronicus. Of course I was going to go to a conference and speak on Titus Andronicus. Of If I was at a conference, of course I was there for Titus Andronicus. And it's like, no, I also like much ado about nothing, you know? And so that hyper fixation and hyper focus started to define me. And I, I don't know if it was because I have like a naturally like rebellious streak 
or because like I was just exhausted of being hyper fixated or just purely because like the hyper fixation wore off at that same time. But I felt that external expectation of my being the tightest girl. And I, and I just was like, I don't want to anymore. And I still love Titus, but I don't love it in the way that I used to because of that expectation. Like I have Honestly, I don't think I've brought up Titus on TikTok at all. Like nobody knows this about me. And I know so much about Titus. And, like I, I know too much about Titus and Veronica. <laughs> like it's, yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Well, I think people, hyper-focus sort of breeds its own worst enemy at some point. Yeah. Because you hyper-focus, one hyper-focuses, and that causes me to start over-committing. I get so excited about the thing that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And I start overcommitting and saying like, yeah, I'm going to, oh, I'll, yeah, I can write that article or whatever. Or mm -hmm. like, yeah, I can, I'll, I'll like shoot, I'll, I'll, I'll rope a bunch of like my friends into some project. We'll and, put on Titus. Yeah, exactly. Oh yeah, it'll be great. And then we'll call a bunch of local places to see if they'll let us like use their stage and stuff. And once all those things are in place, it becomes sort of work. Yeah. It becomes that expectation. Like, oh, now it's not you're doing this because you want to. Now you're doing it because it's expected of you. And that is just such, like, I, what's the, a damp towel, right? Or a wet rag well, on, there's on, a, on there's the... There's a loss to it. Yeah, there really is. Like, I remember... Yeah, there's I, a grief to it. It's like yeah. a grief. I mean, I remember the day that I woke up and realized that I, I was no longer hyper-focused on Harry Potter. Like, I mm. remember... Like, I was... Eric, I was fucking obsessed with Harry Potter. Like, I was in the newspaper for how many times I read Harry Potter as a child. Like, I was fixated on Harry Potter. And, like, one day when I was, like, 16 or 17, I woke up and I was like, oh, it's, oh, it's fine. And it was like that. It was like an overnight shift. In like, huh. And it wasn't like I like had some like foundational, you know, and it was before like the J.K. Rowling is a problematic piece of garbage thing. It was just like I woke up one day and I looked around and like my whole room was Harry Potter. My mom called me literally like two days ago and was like, do you want your Harry Potter sheets and your Harry Potter throw pillow and your Harry Potter blanket and your Harry Potter jean jacket? And I was like, no. She's like, but you used to love Harry Potter so much. And I was like, yeah, I know. Well, just for the record, you should definitely hold on to that Harry Potter jean jacket. <laughs> it's That's a pretty just something sweet you should have. jean jacket. Um, but, like, that was the thing. And, like there's, like, there's, like, such a loss to it. And it's, like, I get sad. I get sad for those moments that I've had in my life where I profoundly love something and I profoundly attach myself to it. And it was, like, a foundational part of me and my personality and who I am. And then I wake up one day and I don't care about it anymore in the way that I used to. Mm. And it's like, I'm not, I haven't even seen the last four Harry Potter movies. Like I just quit. I just quit Harry Potter. Like I was like, okay. And I think that degree of separation and that degree of like leaving it behind was easier than watching the last few movies because I was like, because I remember, I remember loving it. I remember that joy. And then I watch it now and I'm like, it's a movie. And like that, that loss and that grief, like I hate that about myself, but like I, that's happened to me so many times in my life. And sometimes it's really quick, you know, and sometimes it takes a long time. But I mean, somebody asked me that question on TikTok like a really long time ago. They were like, well, how do you deal with the grief of losing your hyperfixation? And I realized like it was such a good question because the anxiety I feel about what about the day where I wake up and I don't love Shakespeare anymore? 
What about when that happens? And that is so scary. Yeah. You know? Wow. For me, I think that sense of grief sort of compounds. So I have grief in that I have grief because of the grief. There's like a secondary emotion that trails behind it. Yeah, yeah. Especially as an adult with ADHD who was diagnosed at an early age, I've been watching that pattern happen hundreds of times in my life where I become just obsessed with something for a week, two weeks, maybe a month, and I just go on and I create this sense of identity around it. And then all of a sudden I just wake up one day and it's gone. And I'm, uh, it's, it's really feels like I'm mourning for the death of my identity is I'll wake up and I'll feel like, oh my gosh, I've, I've discovered myself. I've learned myself. I've learned that I really want to be a blacksmith or I really want to be a a machinist. Um, (laughs) Katie was a blacksmith for two years. It's a really interesting story because of course she was. Um, But I grieve for that loss of identity. I feel like I learned myself and then lost that version of myself in the blink of an eye. And once that starts to happen over and over and over and over and over again, you start to anticipate it. One starts to anticipate it. I start to anticipate it. And so merely because I've recognized the pattern where humans are generally pretty good at recognizing patterns. And so now when I get hyper fixated on something or hyper focused on something, there's a lingering stench throughout it that is the anticipation of the grief that I will feel when I don't care about this anymore. And so then when the grief does hit, if I do lose focus on that thing and it goes away, the grief itself hits of I've now lost that sense of self that I had when I was hyper-focused on this thing. And then the secondary emotion behind that is sort of the anger at the grief, is I'm mad that I'm grieving. And it sort of snowballs into itself, as I get mad that I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. And I think that secondary anger at the grief, I think that's, I think that's the real devil here. See, it's interesting that you say that because I literally like put my nose on my finger like a minute ago because what I was going to say is that I was late diagnosed, right? right? Like I was diagnosed like as an adult three years ago at this point. So like for me, I never knew what hyperfixation or hyperfocus was. Like I just knew I would go through phases. And so for me, the anger has always been at myself. It's I've always felt like a fuck up because mm. I can't commit to anything. And, like, that was the thing. It's because I was like, you know, like, everybody knows the Harry Potter guy. Everybody knows the, you know, the Twilight girl or the, you know, the Supernatural girl or whatever. Like, everybody knows that person in their life. And I was like, well, everybody has something. Everybody has, like, their thing. But I've never had my thing. My thing has always been having things. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing, yeah. And, and that has sort of, like, that has been what has defined me is, and my friends, you know, make jokes where it's like, oh, that's Katie. Yeah, she's a blacksmith, I guess, but also she swords fight, and also she's a magician, and also she's not. Like, and it's just, and it's funny to some extent, and in some extent, like to some extent, I'm, I don't want to say I'm grateful, but I acknowledge that having those cycles and not knowing what was going on meant that I have done so many things and I have gained so many weird skills. Like, I own a fucking hurdy-gurdy. Like, come on, right? You do. I'm looking at it now. It's (laughs) it's a damn good-looking hurdy-gurdy. It's a very pretty hurdy-gurdy. As hurdy-gurdies go. Um, But, like, but that's the thing, is, like, so now I'm a magician who plays the hurdy-gurdy, but also I'm a trained blacksmith and I'm quantifiably an expert on Shakespeare. Like, that is not a useful set of career skills, but I'm still grateful for it because it meant that I got to try new things. 
but it always came with that loss and it always came with that grief. And so, yeah. And so I guess like what I'm just realizing literally like right now is like the anger was never about the grief. The anger was at myself because I felt like there was something wrong with me. And that was why I just couldn't settle down. I just couldn't pick a thing. Like everybody else picks a thing. Just pick your fucking thing. Make up your mind. And I couldn't do it. And then that just became who I was. Yeah, I think the the term that I use, or I, I use because I've always heard it this way, um, is moral failing. Yeah. So, for example, uh, we now know that addiction, for example, addiction isn't a moral failing. It's not just because you're a bad person and therefore you're addicted to this thing. It's, there are measurable things going on in a person's brain that they cannot control, that they've had since birth, that is causing their brain to now take this non-essential thing and consider it essential, which is essentially what addiction is. That is also exacerbated by ADHD. That is, which by the way is also, oh, we could do a whole episode on oh, ADHD we should, and addiction. Honestly, I'm writing it down. Yeah, write that I'm, down. <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole thing. A person with ADHD's inability to commit to things on these long timescales that other people seem to be able to commit to with ease. Um, it's not a moral failing. It's not just because you're bad. <laughs> it's... There are chemical imbalances in your brain that cause that to be immensely difficult. And so I think being able to recognize stuff like that, these these symptoms that we have, as not being moral failings, just like drilling into your head the, the, the understanding that these are not moral failings. It's not just because you're a bad person. There's a Your brain is physically different. <laughs> so that's important. Also, it's worth noting that people with ADHD tend to be more creative, which is a really loaded thing for me. Like when I hear that, that kind of charges me up because do I you think, get like prickly about I it. I do. I'm like, because well, for one, I think creativity is sort of a skill that you can practice and get better at. So everybody is creative. Some people nurture that creativity and some people don't, which, you know, neither right nor wrong. You don't have to do that. I th- it's, not it's a been, moral failing. You it's say. not a moral failing, exactly. Whereas people with ADHD just sort of have a more natural aptitude. And if you consider David Brooks's definition of creativity from his book, The Social Animal, which I cannot recommend highly enough. It's fascinating. I don't agree with his politics, but wow, can that guy write? Um, he defines creativity as um, the blending of gists. So, for example, in your head right now, you have an understanding of what a tiger is. Yeah. Just like in your head. You just right. have like the, the stripes. I, yes, and I know what a tiger is. And they're furry. And there's my favorite one's name is Hobbes. Like you know, that kind of stuff. You have a gist. Just the concept is floating around. Right. You also have a concept of, say, Winston Churchill. Like that concept is just floating around. He smoked a cigar and he was he was talked like this and he was a very gruff guy. So well, that was like Winston Churchill. It was pretty was good. Right it's here, like right. he was right here. Wow. You can blend the concept of a tiger and Winston Churchill together and think of uh, a tiger in a cool in a cool suit with a long cigar, like oh, see, talking I, about Normandy. I just went with the sweetest Ed Hardy jacket of all time. <laughs> it would be a pretty sweet Ed Hardy jacket, but the the our ability to do that to take two two or more gists and just sort of smash them together and see what happens. David Brooks defines that as imagination creative imagination. People with ADHD do this practically compulsively. I, I, I sort of think of my brain is immensely unorganized. All the things that I know and all the things that I think about are just in one big pile on the floor. Like <laughs> if, if, if a neurotypical person's brain is roughly a filing cabinet, mine is like if you're to just dump out a backpack and it's all just sitting on the floor, which is really bad if I need to quickly recall a piece of essential information. However, completely unrelated things 
are rubbing up against each other at all times. Yeah. <laughs> Things that m- wouldn't logically go together are sitting right next to each other and interacting. And so you, for example, have hyper-focused on blacksmithing and Shakespeare and magic and the whole list. I don't want to, you know, use, I don't want to define no, what okay. those were to you, but in your words. Um and it doesn't really seem why those are useful. Like, it's, so, it's sort of annoying that I have all these seemingly unrelated skills. Until you have to be the entertainment director of a renaissance festival. That and brings, then that shit comes together, comes together, baby! Well, so, I guess what I'm tra- attempting to say is that our worldview ends up being really strange and vivid and unique because of all these strange things we have floating around in our head. So, for example, I was a musician for quite a while. So when I think of certain things, I can think, oh, that's just like how this music thing works, even though what I'm looking at is, you know, I'm fiddling with electronics or something like that. The analogies just sort of come together by accident. And so that's one of those things that it might not be obvious the ways in which that bears fruit or builds bridges, um, but it's ugh, that's kind of the superpower of it, is, is that we compulsively mix, mix concepts together. You have to say superpower. I did. I just wanted to see the look on your face. Oh. It was beautiful, people. I'm, I and, just... You know how I feel. <laughs> I know how you feel about it. We'll do an episode on it at some point. And then my second point, just to tie off this section, I suppose, we should start talking about the science, um, is uh, there's a person named um, Dr. Ken Robinson. He was actually knighted, so he's Dr. Sir Ken Robinson, or Sir Dr. Ken Robinson, which I think is hilarious. Um, and he studies, uh, lo- roughly speaking, creativity. He wrote a book called The Element, which I also cannot recommend highly enough. But I went to a lecture of his, and he was telling a story about how his son, first when his son went to college, he wanted to study philosophy. And he makes the joke, he says... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, I don't believe the major philosophy firms are hiring these days. (laughs) And then he quit that. And he goes, oh, I'm going to study art history, actually. And he studied art history. And then he was like, eh, I'm going to quit that. So he quit that. And then he ended up, I think, getting a degree in business because he just sort of, he went through presumably what we kind of did. He's like, oh, I'm going to fixate on something. And then, so I might as well get something, quote unquote, useful. And then he ended up being... uh, an art purveyor, I believe is the term, where he would basically just travel around the world and, uh, what's the word for, uh, deciding how much something is worth. Oh, like a, 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 a appraiser. Appraiser. So his, his, his philosophy knowledge sort of allowed him to understand very precisely what, like, the larger concepts of the artworks were. His art history knowledge was, was useful for obvious reasons, and then he had a business degree, so he knew how to actually work it. Now, the thing is, the point is, is that you can't reverse engineer that. He didn't think, I'm going to be an art dealer, therefore I'll spend two years on philosophy, two years on art history, and two years on business. He just did what it occurred to him to do at the time, and it just sort of came together later. I, I, I inherently and deeply understand that story to my very core. Every cell of my body... Renaissance fair, Katie. ...understands that. There you go. So I just want to point out, although it might not make sense to you at the time, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. <laughs> Deep. Everybody, you did it! You made it to the middle of the episode! Just want to let you know that we're really proud of you. 
Also, did you drink any water today? That's important. I have been drinking water, Katie. Thank you for asking. I have some right here. Also, we have a Red Bevel shop where we have our cool merch. Our merch stuff. It's merch. Hey, hey Eric, would you like to tell people how to find our merch? Yeah. Or just should they just guess? It's redbubble.com slash people slash infinite quest, right? Yeah. And also, if you go to our website, which is infinitequestpodcast.com, there's a link right at the top. You just click the little button and it'll take you right to our cool store. Oh, sweet. Yeah. And you know what else you can do what on else? our website? What else can you do? You can send us an email and ask us your questions for our next Q&A episode. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's great. We is have that an what, email and everything. While I'm, while I'm editing all these episodes. Yeah, I have a whole secret website. It's called Only <laughs> <laughs> Back to the show. Transition. Hey, everybody. It's me, Katie Osaurus. And we just wanted to let you know that this week's episode is brought to you by our good friends over at Honey Playbox. What is Honey Playbox, you might ask? Well, I'm going to give it to you straight. They sell sex toys. But here's the thing. Honey Playbox believes that pleasure, play, health, and accessibility are necessary for positive experiences of sexuality. And you know what? Here at Infinite Quest, we agree. Especially in conversation with how tough sex and sexy times can be when you're struggling with ADHD or depression or any sort of neurodivergency. Having open, honest conversations about sex and sexuality are really, really important to us. And our friends at Honey Playbox agree. And not only do our friends at Honey Playbox agree with that, uh, they also want you to save a little bit of money while you're having these conversations and exploring sexuality and what works and doesn't work for you. So they've hooked us up with a 20% off discount code. From now until the end of March, use code InfiniteQuest to get 20% off your order. That's like honestly not a bad deal, you guys. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. Also, just because I think this is very funny, Honey Playbox was kind enough to send over just a ludicrous amount of stuff for me and Eric to look at and talk about. So in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see some content over on the YouTube, and we're also going to talk more just about sex toys and how they can help uh, your ADHD relationships. So we will uh, be posting that content soon, so you have that to look forward to. So again, use code InfiniteQuest if you want 20% off your order over at Honey Playbox, and... uh have have fun oh okay bye okay can we can we talk about the science part yeah now? let's talk about science okay i'm really excited about this so so i know that we've both been doing research um but one of the things that i thought was the most interesting was that hyperfixation like hasn't been studied up yeah. until very very recently like there was just a study published in September of this year, like that was when it came out that really sort of like outlined the rates of hyperfixation, but it was all like self identified. Like the, the people that they studied literally just were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have hyperfocus. And so that like wound up having like some really profound implications. But the most important thing is that hyperfixation is not part of the clinical definition of ADHD. And, is, and so, therefore, a lot of clinicians and people who are diagnosing ADHD will mistake hyperfixation and hyperfocus as, oh, well, you can pay attention and you can, you know, do the thing when you need to. You're just not applying yourself. But in reality, hyperfixation is like a very specific thing that has to do with dopamine in your brain. And Eric, to make this point, I would like <laughs> you to explain ADHD and how dopamine works in your brain because you're better at it than I am. Oh, well, thank you very much. That's, that's really nice. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and just play that again in my head. Eric, you're better at it than I am. <laughs> you're yes. better at it than I am, Eric. Speaking of go. dopamine. 
So basically, a person with ADHD has low dopamine levels in their brain at any given time. They have low tonic dopamine. Um, but your brain releases little little bloopy blur bursts of dopamine when something new happens, something new and interesting, like a sound outside, or you have a new thought, just new stuff, basically. Um, and so since people with ADHD's tonic dopamine level is low, the urge to experience new stimulus such to release that those little bloops of dopamine is just irresistible because our dopamine levels are low and our brain really wants to get it back to normal. Yeah. So we're constantly trying to get those little bursts. Now, for me, since hyperfocus has been studied not very much at all, which let me tell you, I'm just doing it's research so for this episode, I was so that. frustrated. I was like, so wow. weird. It makes me want to be like, all right, I'm going to school now because I'm going to do this research. Eric, I'm looking at you as your friend and someone who loves you very, very much. Like, if you, I'm not telling you how to live your life, but you would be <laughs> amazing at this. Well, just so you. you know. Thank you very much. Continue I appreciate your it. education. I will. I'm close. Well, only with your permission. I mean, I meant on the podcast, but you can also <laughs> do what you want. Thanks. You can go to school, live your best life. I support you. So my understanding of what hyperfocus is when I experience it is... Now, so I have hyperactive type ADHD predominantly. What? What? Did you know that? <laughs> Katie's like, Katie's like, Eric, I had to like wrangle you physically into this room to record today. I know. <laughs> so I have hyperactive type ADHD, um, which causes me to seek new stimulus like physically. Like I will physically move around to experience new stimulus. I'll have a new I thought. I'll, I'll, I'll go over there. My brain is, I don't want to say addicted because there's a very specific definition of what addicted is, addiction is. But it compulsively does that. Now when I hyper-focus on something, to the outside observer, it looks like my ADHD just up and went away. Like, oh my gosh, I thought you had ADHD, but there you are focusing on that thing for four hours. Clearly you're faking. Eric. Clearly you're faking for yeah. the... for the, Applying yourself for Because we all know there are so many accommodations available for people with ADHD there in really the schooling are. system. There's so many. That was sarcasm. There, there's not. There's a, there are a couple. There's like two. That's a different episode, but there are a couple. So when I'm hyper-focused on something, from the out, to the outside observer, it seems like my ADHD went away. When in reality, I'm just as ADHD as I've ever been. My brain is still constantly seeking those little bursts of phasic dopamine. It just so happens that I'm so interested in what I'm doing that that one task is new enough and interesting enough, and I'm constantly turning over new stones within this task that I'm getting those bursts of phasic dopamine. The task, in, in essence, doesn't lose its newness. It always has that sort of new quality. Which is interesting that you say that because it's absolutely in line with this study that I just read. Because they talked a lot about the fact that you don't have control over it. Like there's no magic hyper-focus switch that you can hit. And so a lot of ADHD people reported being, I don't want to say upset, but the study showed that people with ADHD couldn't hyper-focus in school. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it was like, there's no, there's no switch. There's no like turning it on and off. It happens unconsciously. For instance, if your first episode of Doctor Who, you're like, oh wow, my brain like that. I'll watch another one. And then you watch another one and your brain likes it more, right? And then all of a sudden it's 15 hours later and your entire house is covered in Doctor Who cosplays. Not that I would know anything about that, but that is the reality of it is like, and so then that is, I think, partly where 
that frustration comes in for people who don't understand the realities of living with ADHD. It's like, well, why can't you just focus on your school the way you focus on your models? Why can't you just focus on school the way you focus on Doctor Who or whatever? It becomes this catch-22 where the things that I really enjoy are things that I'm able to hyper-focus on and hyper-fixate on and get a lot of dopamine and pleasure from. But the things that don't become more boring because <laughs> I know I could be watching Doctor Who right now. Right. That's one of the reasons that the term attention deficit disorder kind of rose me the wrong way. I mean, I'm not offended, but I just I'm partial towards things like making sense. People with ADHD don't have a deficit of attention at all. I got attention coming out of my ears. <laughs> like I have so much attention. It's a it's it's a it's a deficit in one's ability to regulate that attention. And hyperfocus is just a shining example of when ADHD sort of rolls over and that dysregulation of attention sort of goes, oh, that's right. It's not that they don't have attention. It's that they can't control it because that person has been doing the same thing for 13 hours and they had a bunch of other stuff to do. Yeah, which is also like that's the that's the downside of it is, you know, the the hyperfixation where you like I do this all the time. I forget to pee. I forget to pee all the, oh, all yeah. the damn time. Um, you know, where you're just like, for me, it's especially like when I'm building costumes, that is like the most mm -hmm. that I get hyper fixated because like my brain is engaged and my, my body is engaged because I'm like physically making something. Um, and so it's like, I will sit down at my sewing machine to make, you know, the first part. Oh, I'm just going to do the first part. And then literally I look up, it is the next day, the sun is rising and I'm like, where did the time go? What happened? I haven't eaten or peed in 12 hours. I'm like, that's not healthy. That's not an okay way to live your life. But that is the reality of getting lost in that hyperfixation. Yeah, absolutely. That's the only thing that I was able to find in terms of downsides of hyperfocus. Um, I was I thought maybe there's you're depleting some sort of neurotransmitter or something like that. But the only thing I could find is that because of a person with ADHD's lack of ability to deliberately go set shift tasks, it can wreak serious havoc on a person's ability to like stay nourished yeah. <laughs> or stay hygienic. But shifting tasks, I think that is the downside. Like I think that's the that's the part where things really get screwy because hyperfixation and I and I want to be like very clear for people who might be listening who don't have ADHD. It's not just like 17 hours. Like we're not necessarily talking about like it's only ever 12 hours at a time or 17 hours at a time. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. And sometimes like um a really good example is the other day I was trying to clean and I found a pile of papers. And rather than be like, okay, I need to set this pile of papers aside, I was like, well, now's a really good time to hyperfixate on like perfectly organizing this pile of papers. But that fucked my whole schedule for the rest of the day because instead of spending, you know, five minutes sorting the papers like I thought, it took me two hours. My struggle to shift from task to task is such a documented part of ADHD. But in combination with hyperfocus and in combination with that desperate need to like find that dopamine, that's when it can like really impact your day to day life is those small moments of hyperfocus in very inconvenient times. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that my hyperfixation comes with, or I guess my hyperfixation or hyperfocus on that type of time scale of like the 15 minute time scale when you have something else to do, but. I just really got into like clearing my counters. One of the reasons that I feel that I allow those tasks to, I guess, run long, to start butting into the other stuff that I had to do yeah. that day, is because 
I don't want to generalize too much, but when one has ADHD and knows it, there's a scarcity of attention to a given task. So there are certain times when it is nearly impossible, impossible for me to deliberately shift my focus towards, say, clearing off the kitchen counters. And so if there's a time when I'm into it, I need to catch that train right then because it's leaving the station. So if I suddenly look at my, you know, the dishes in my sink and I'm, my brain wants to hyper-focus on it, that's scarce. I need to take advantage of this opportunity. And so I'll run over and, and start doing it and allow myself to hyper-focus on it because I know I won't be able to deliberately shift my focus towards it later. That's so interesting because I'm completely the opposite. Really? Yeah. Because, and I think maybe some of that comes from like stage management maybe because like the thing with the reality of my life is like in you know my resume is so complicated if you haven't actually looked at it but like event management whatever and then I went from that I mean I did a bunch it doesn't matter so event management and then stage management and then large-scale entertainment directing there is a modicum of like I can float around from task to task to task but there's also like rehearsal starts at three o'clock. If I'm not at rehearsal at three o'clock, not only am I doing a bad job, but I'm in trouble. And my professionalism and my reputation as a stage manager is now on the line because I'm a stage manager who can't get to rehearsal on time because I was just going to do the dishes for 15 minutes at 1230 or 230. You know what I mean? I have absolutely beaten those urges like out of myself because I can't risk I can't risk having those moments in my life and I think it is a it is a sort of um I don't want to say repercussion but is it is a reality of being a performer you are expected to be on time you are expected to know your lines you are you know there's a lot of personal responsibility that comes from being a performer and so for me I go all I want to do in the whole world is do the dishes I will do the dishes later. Now, I know the dishes are not going to get done later, but I have to be on time to rehearsal. Mm. And so I and so a lot of times like and just speaking very vulnerably because this is a circle of trust, like often at the detriment to myself or my living situation or, you know, the realities of I don't, showering, being clean. Right. <laughs> I will skip those because I know that I have to do the thing at three o'clock. And that's why I get so angry and so frustrated, you know, and, and at this point, like I know how to manage my ADHD pretty well. Like I still have a lot of moments of like, Katie, put down the pile of papers. You don't need to sort this, but also like, I don't have a job right now. It's the middle of the pandemic. Like I'm not going out. I'm not going anywhere. So it doesn't matter if I sort the papers, but I get mad at myself. Cause I go, Oh no, 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 no. If you sort the papers right now, then the next time you have to be at rehearsal, you're going to give yourself permission to sort these papers. Hmm. And then you're fucked. And so like that like regimentation of needing to never give in to those urges and like never give in to that hyper focus except when I can, that is for me like that's how I've had to do it. That's how I've had to manage. How does that feel constantly fighting? Awful. It feels fucking terrible. It's awful. I'm always itchy. I'm always itchy. I just really got, I got the urge to reach over and scratch you. Like, I mean, as a you joke, but like, I was going to ask you this later because I thought it would be a fun podcast prompt, but now I want to do it right now. Okay. Describe to me using whatever words you need to what the inside of your brain feels like. 
Whoa. Physically? All the time. Like what it feels like physically? Or like, you know, whatever. But like, how would you describe what your brain feels like? Well, so I'm thinking of this in a couple of ways. One is the, like the literal physical sensation. Mm -hmm. What does it physically Mm -hmm. feel like? Yeah. In which case I would say it feels hot or warm. But also I genuinely, organically, I'm, I'm going, I'm going to say it feels like a motor. That's just rev, that's just all the time. Like imagine if you're in a car and you're in first gear, but you're trying to get to 30 miles per hour. So you just have to to get to get there. Mm-hmm. That's sort of how it feels. And it's building up a lot of friction and heat. The reason I qualify that so much is it is actually one of the questions that is asked when diagnosing ADHD about normally about about children. Let's say oh, they often seem to have too much energy, quote, as if driven by a motor. Diagnostic criteria. This is how we fucking diagnose this. Oh, that's a whole episode. Um, but so anyways, it is literally a diagnostic criteria that you are, you, your brain can be described as being run by a motor. So I was kind of scoffing at my own analogy. But anyways, Katie, to answer your question, it feels like a motor. It's good. That was a good answer. What does your brain feel like, Katie? <laughs> you know those machines that they have at like casinos and sporting events where you get into the little box and then a fan turns on oh, and yeah. money yeah. blows around? My brain feels like that, but all of the dollar bills are made out of wool. Huh. And so the inside of my brain is constantly itchy. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's just, it's, and so I like, I have this like very specific like mental image that I came up with when I was a kid. And it's like, my brain is like a big cave. And I'm standing in the middle of this cave. And it's just like one of those like dollar bill machines. But all the thoughts in my head, all the things that I have to do are just blowing around me in the like empty blackness of this cave. And I'm like reaching out and I'm trying like desperately to find, you know, like if your knowledge is a pile on the floor, mine is floating around above me. But like everything is scratchy. Everything is scratchy. And Hmm. so, like, we haven't talked about this on the podcast, but I know we've talked about this. Right. But so, like, everybody gives me shit for saying this, and I know how fucking pretentious it's about to sound, but that's why I built the fucking goddamn mind library. Oh, yeah. That's why I built it. Because, like... Mind palace. Mind... Yeah, but I call it a library because it's slightly less pretentious. Slightly. Okay. But, like, that's what happened was, is, like, I, I remember I was in maybe, like, high school or something... And I I heard about that concept and I was like, well, what if I put a library in the cave? And then every time I find a thought, I could just take it to the library and I could put it somewhere where I know that it Mm -hmm. is. And it started helping. But like, anyway, to circle all the way back to like, what the fuck I was talking about? Like, the fact that I always feel like I'm constantly scrambling. And I think maybe it's like a, a, the differential between like hyperactive and inattentive, where like, I'll spend... 25 minutes sitting and staring into the middle distance because I'm just waiting for the right thought, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I find it and I'm like, oh, huzzah, hooray. Except that if I'm sitting and staring into the middle distance for 25 minutes, now it's 325 and I'm late to rehearsal. And so I had to shut that shit down. Huh. That's deeply sad. I'm sorry. No, no, Katie, I don't want one. It's not up to me whether or not it's sad. If you're not sad about it, then it's not sad. But the idea that you have to, that you, well, not that you have to, the idea that you have been 
fighting these urges for completely legitimate reasons. It's just kind of, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's awful. I, I don't bit. like it. So anyway, our producer Brian is telling us that we have to Oh, is on. he that tentacle-having... Son um, of a bitch. Um, we, we got new canon material coming forward. Antler-wearing. <laughs> Notice I didn't say antler-having. He's wearing them. Like the Christmas antlers that you get, he's wearing those too. I want to be very specific in this moment. Are you picturing, like, the felt Christmas yes, antlers? Yes, exactly, yes. Or are you picturing, like, like a dark, like, gothic horn like aesthetic? Like the felt, the, the felt ones. Okay. That's very different than what I picture. Uh, yeah, That's I, fine. I, I, That's I, I, fine. Yeah, cool. I just wanted to verify. Right. Okay, so anyway. I think to circle all the way back, all the way, all the way back to the very beginning, which was Rainbow's original question, was twofold. It was a question about what happens when your hyperfocus is interrupted by external factors, and then also what happens when your hyperfocus or hyperfixation starts to feel like a job. Hmm. You know? Yeah. And so I think that ultimately, though, they kind of depending on how you look at it, they kind of squoosh together into the fact that either way, your hyperfixation and your hyperfocus is being interrupted. And that thought pattern and that dopamine flow is being interrupted by either thing. And I don't have any other thoughts. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, I think... I had no idea where that was going. <laughs> I think where, where it all comes together is, is ultimately the pondry is the quandary. I, I mixed... Ponder ultimate... and quandary together. I saw it happen and That's I went, pondry is honestly like, I want to start using word. that. Screw it. It's a pondry. Here we are coining it right it's now. It's a quandary to ponder. A pondry. A qua- a, yeah. Put it on a t-shirt. We're doing it right now. So ultimately, I think what what the 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 the, the quandary to to ponder the pondry, if you will, Katie, <laughs> coining that term right now. Hashtag pondry um, <laughs> is how do you reconcile hyperfocus with the outside world, whether it's interrupting you or whether it's telling you that you have other stuff to do or whether it's this like all these things that are turning your hyperfocus into something that's now a job. How do you reconcile that? What is this? What does that all mean? How can I be okay given this circumstance um and i of course have not figured that out but i would say that i've noticed that there are certain things that i consistently hyper focus on and there are certain things that i unpredictably hyper focus on so there's sort of two categories things that i know cause me to hyper focus and things that i don't know mm-hmm. just random other shit yeah um and something that i try to do well sort of like in our partnership um editing audio um is like that for me <laughs> Music and, and podcasts. Watching you, you edit <laughs> the podcast is some of the most stressful shit in the entire I'm not, world. I'm having a blast. I know, but you don't look like you're having a blast. I you know, look like you are in agony. And I just want to be like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Leave it. And then you're just like, no. no. Well, so I, there, I, I would basically try to say, recognize which ones you can predict, which hyperfocuses you can predict are going to happen, and try to make it so that your life is benefited from the fact that you hyperfocus on that thing. So for example, right now, the fact that I hyperfocus on editing audio is quite incredibly useful because after we're done recording this, I'm just gonna boo and just go through the whole thing and make it nice and pretty and, and all the stuff. Um, so I would say, yeah, try to try to facilitate, try to get yourself in a position in which that hyperfocus is beneficial, um, not just in a professional way, because that also you know becomes a job and can sort of taint the whole thing. <laughs> you said taint. I did, Katie, I did say taint. Um, <laughs> you said it again. But also, like my, as my grandfather would say, my sanity maintenance uh, practice at the end of the day is I'll uh, do coffee stir models. 
And that, that is another thing that I consistently hyper-focus on. So that is also very useful to me to know because it keeps me sane. Like at the end of the day, I have to get home from work. We finish doing a bunch of work here. I know that I can like just go boof and my brain will just go coffee stirs. Like that, the, all, the, all there is are coffee stirs. Um, so it's useful in sort of a, in a recreational way. Um, because when it's the end of the night, you don't have to worry about the fact that you have to do work. You don't have to worry about going to sleep. And that's one of my big things is I'll, I'll make coffee stir models until I've five. I've watched that happen. You have. Um, but so basically try to recognize. So basically try to recognize the benefits of it, which sounds sort of trite, like sort of like a, 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 a cop out of an answer. Um, but it does have its uses. And also my second part would be just, just forgive yourself. Nobody's perfect. It's, it's just some things kind of suck. Yeah. <laughs> they just do. And the fact that you, you know, are the, the you know, the fact that your hyper-focus is often inconvenient or, or convenient, but interrupted or whatever, it just kind of sucks. And it's made worse by being mad at yourself for how you're treating it. So however you're handling it, it's okay. You're doing great. You don't need to get mad at yourself for it. I think my thing, and this is something that like, I wish somebody would have told me sooner because like I talked about earlier, like I used to get so angry at myself. Like, why can't I pick a thing? Like, why can't I stick to a thing? But the fact of the matter is, is like every single thing that I have ever done has for some moment or some amount of time brought me immeasurable joy. Mm. And even after the fact, even, you know, like all of my blacksmithing stuff is in Virginia. I haven't touched an iron in two years maybe even more but like i still look back on on like the memories that i made learning how to make armor i still look back on like the experiences that i have because i learned how to make armor like i i got my job at the renaissance festival because i casually threw in like oh also i'm a blacksmith and they're like what (laughs) but like those moments there is so much joy in the world And there are so many beautiful things. And some of them are episodes of Doctor Who. And some of them are the nights that you spend just binging Grey's Anatomy with your college roommate. As a person who does not often feel joy, and as a person who struggles so much with depression and loneliness, and I've felt so broken for so long, the fact that within all of that, hyperfixation and hyperfocus has allowed me to feel joy and find joy and share joy with mm. other people that i think is maybe what makes the grief worth it in the end that was such a better answer than mine katie <laughs> it was so good i was like trying to make it useful all right everybody and you were like the world is a cruel place but i find little glimmers in my eyes. But no, I, I I completely agree with that. I think ultimately hyperfocus, for me at least, is is a joyous experience. And although it's fleeting like everything is, you got to take your joy where you can get it. And that's it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Infinite Quest. We had a great time recording it, didn't we, Katie? We did. It was the best. We definitely recorded it just now. Just uh, right now. And we definitely aren't recording this part over again because we forgot the music. That would be silly. I'm sorry, I said all that. Katie, could you just let me work? Okay. I'm, I'm tired. Sorry. My back hurts. All right. Oh, you're just going to shake that, right? Okay. That's fine.
Well, if you want to support this nonsense, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash infinitequest. It really goes a long way towards allowing us to uh, work more on this and spend less time doing other things that aren't related to this. Um, we really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week when we talk about hygiene. It's more interesting than it sounds. Transition. It's not transition. It's over. <laughs>